0: The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. I had the joy of, I've said this before, of playing uh, college football down, uh, down the road down at Liberty University, and in my sophomore year of college, we had a whole new uh, staff of coaches. The old coaches all got fired, um, slash resigned, I think fired, Right. And we got a whole new uh, coaching staff that came in my sophomore year. And, and one of my roommates, uh, his name is Matt, he started to notice a certain young lady that was uh, all of a sudden started hanging around the football operations building. And he was totally enamored by this girl. Every conversation, he's like, man, who is that? I mean, who is that girl, man? Where she come from? Where is she doing? What is she doing here? And most importantly, does she have a boyfriend? And because my friend Matt, who is so aggressive in this pursuit of this identity of this young girl, during one of our meetings, like like pre-practice meetings, we're watching film, my roommate Matt, he's, he interrupts the meeting, he says, Coach Hand, now remember, new coach, we don't really know him yet, he doesn't really know us yet, he says, Coach Hand, have you seen this girl? Have you seen this girl who's hanging around every now and then? And he goes on, and, and Coach Hand's like, what are you, Matt? We're talking about football. What what are you what are you talking about girl for? Well, that's what young men do, football and girls, right? That's all they talk about. But uh, but Coach Hand's like, get what what are you talking about? And so Matt, you know, just transfixed by this young lady, he proceeds to describe her to Coach Hand in detail. Now remember, Coach Hand and the entire staff is new to the program. So there was this awkward silence all of a sudden, and a very strange look came On Coach Hand's face in sudden disgust at this young man, Matt, describing this lady, this young lady. And Coach Hand continued the meeting. Well, a couple days later, we had this cookout. And the point of the cookout was for the the team and the trainers and all the the people that that had been a part of the program for a while to meet all the new coaches and to meet the new families and to meet uh, everybody kind of get to know each other a little better. And Matt saw this young lady there. And he was confused, like, what is she doing here for this event? And it came time for the coaches to introduce their families to the players. And Coach Han gets up. It's his time. He says, this is my wife. And everybody says, hey, wife, you know, this is my oldest daughter. And hey, oldest daughter. And then Coach Han, with eyes of blazing fire, stares into the soul of my roommate, Matt, and says, and this, is my 16-year-old daughter, (laughs) Casey. The crowd lost it because Matt, a some 20-plus-year-old, had had gone to every single person in that crowd by this time and was inquiring about who this girl was. Uh, And all eyes just turned to Matt, and he quickly became the reddest I've ever seen any person ever get. And then he turned even more red, remembering how he had described this young lady... Coach Han's daughter to Coach Han just a couple of days before. You won't talk about awkward. That was awkward. So I'm happy to, to say that Matt and Casey are actually married. I was in their wedding uh, down in Georgia a couple years ago. And, uh, you know, you have the, the um, reception, the, the, um, the, the rehearsal dinner, you know, and everybody gets to say something about them. And I just made sure I took it upon myself to make sure that everybody remembered, everybody knew exactly how these guys met. Matt learned a very embarrassing lesson that morning, or that day. And here's the lesson. Knowing someone's true identity is really, really important. (laughs) Not just their name, or where they're from, or whether or not they have a boyfriend, but actually knowing who they are. You see, Matt knew a lot of facts about Casey before that fateful cookout. But at the cookout, he realized who she actually was. He knew before the cookout what she looked like, what kind of clothes she wore, what kind of car she drove. But at the cookout, it was revealed to him who she actually was. I know this is a silly little story to get us kind of started this morning, but I hope it gets us thinking. I hope it gets us thinking this morning. In our journey through Mark today, we get to really the greatest climax of Mark thus far. Jesus asked his disciples if they yet clearly see who Jesus really is. We'll get into the text in a minute, but but they knew a lot about Jesus. Then they even gave a really good answer, an answer that that we would probably give. But like my buddy Matt with his now wife uh, Casey, the disciples were in the dark still about the true essence of the identity of Of Jesus, what he had come to do. So, as we get into this morning, let me challenge us all. I'm challenging myself to really ask ourselves the question Do we really see the identity of Jesus? Most of us in the room, probably like Peter, will give the right answer. But just saying the right answer doesn't mean we see the right answer. Let me say it this way just saying the right things doesn't mean we actually see the right things. And a lot of us grow, myself especially, have grown up saying the right things. But it's time that we begin to see what that actually means, that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, maybe here this morning, and this is kind of your first time to do this whole church thing, and maybe this is is totally new to you, like singing songs and like, you know, giving money to to people, you know, and, and this is all kind of new, like what's this all about? Well, it's my joy that you're here this morning, and I'm glad you're here. But listen, the whole revelation of who Jesus is and what his mission actually was is the greatest news ever. When you believe in Jesus, you pass from death unto life. When you believe in Jesus, you're actually translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. When you believe in Jesus, you're given a new identity that's attached to the very identity of Jesus himself. When you believe in Jesus, you are no longer the status of sinner. But you are now the status, the identity of saint. That's not to say that as a saint you don't sin. Of course we do. But once you are created new, you have this new identity. Your old identity is gone. And it takes a lifetime of us learning in our minds how to live in the reality of this new identity. But regardless of how well we see it, it does not change the reality of who we are in Christ. So if you're here this morning and this is new to you, this whole thing about Jesus and this thing of, of, of faith in, in God and believing in Jesus, it's my honor that you're here to hear about the true identity of this man named Jesus. Because once you start trusting in him, you are given his identity. It's awesome. It's good news. So let's go ahead and jump into Mark chapter 8. And we're walking through the scripture as we've, we're now in Mark, this is almost to the end. Next week, I think we turn to chapter 9, so it's getting very exciting as we're moving forward. But Jesus, uh, the, the, the Bible says in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So, Jesus and the 12, and if you're new, we kind of read a little bit, and then we talk about what it means, and then we read a little bit more, and we talk about what it means, and we kind of wrap it all up at the end. But, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and these 12, have left a town called Bethsaida, which we talked about last week, where Jesus healed a blind man. Now, this healing was very unique, remember? Jesus laid his hands on this blind man, and Jesus asked him, how how do you see? What do you see? And the blind man says, well, I see things, I see men, but they look like they're trees walking around. So he could see but it was still very blurry, still very, uh, he was still, uh, still very blurry to him. It wasn't clear at all. So Jesus touches the man a second time, and Mark records for us that after the second touch, the man saw clearly. Now, as Richard mentioned last week, I was preaching through this. This is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus does a two-step kind of healing. Could Jesus have healed the blind man with just one touch, Heck, he could have healed the blind man without any touch. He did that before. He's raised dead without even touching him, right? So it's not about, the, it had, takes two times, Jesus was running, running out of power and so he had to touch him twice. So if he could heal him without even touching him, but yet he touches him twice, it, it shouts off the page to us that something unique is happening here. There's a teaching happening here. And Jesus is wanting us to see the revelation of what it means to begin to see who God is, and then ultimately to see Him perfectly, as He is, and we get into this teaching right here in this twenty-mile trek from, from uh, from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi, and so I want us to take a second, and just spend a minute, just a very brief minute, just in prayer, asking God to open our eyes to see what it is exactly that Jesus is wanting his his disciples to see and subsequently wanting us to see. Because this is huge this morning. Father, I just pause in prayer. I ask, God, that you would teach us, God, that you would reveal to us what it is you're up to. God, why in the world would you heal this guy in stages? We don't believe that you needed to do it that way, but you did it that way. So Father help us to understand what it is that you're teaching what it is that you're showing that in the first touch there was vision but it was still blurry but in the second touch it was perfect it was sight perfect so God help us God I don't know what the what is on the heart of every person who is in this room right now there might be some who've already checked out they're wake back up when things are over God, I just pray that you would teach us this morning. Reveal to us, let your spirit lead us into truth this morning. May we not lean on the words of men, but God, may we lean on the revelation of Christ in us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, on the road to Caesarea Philippi, the Bible says in verse 27. On the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? (laughs) Man, I mean, you you talk about, like, right out of the start of the gate, from the very beginning, Jesus asks one of the most controversial questions that could ever be asked. I mean, if you want to clear a room of skeptics or of anybody, man, you just go ahead and start talking about Jesus. And what what do you say there? I've had conversations where, of course, people will say things from, well, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the great I am. And then other people would say, but Jesus is a figment of your imagination, not, not, not much different from, you know, from uh, the Easter Bunny, from Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox and Saint." well, I'll just, those young years, I should probably not bust that one up. I don't want to be that guy who ruins it for your kids, so I'll just leave that one alone for now. Sorry about that. But, but you get all kinds of answers, right? You get answers like he's a good teacher. You get answers like, he's a good prophet, or he's, he was a great humanitarian. Sometimes people answer, like what Peter's going to answer here in a minute, he answers like, he is the Messiah, that he is actually the Son of God. And so sometimes people actually say the right thing, but does that always mean that they're seeing the right thing? And so... They answer, and they answer with good answers. They say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, this is verse 28. Others say that you're Elijah. Others say that you're just one of the prophets. And so the response from the disciples was, hey, the people are saying that that you're like, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And John the Baptist was a big guy to to the common Jew because he stood up to the Roman power. Now, he lost his head, but he stood up to Rome. Now, and others would say that you're Elijah. And that's a great thing to be called Elijah. Because remember, Elijah didn't even taste death. God ushered Elijah into heaven. I mean, if you're going to be like called something, Elijah is a good thing to be called. Or just one of the prophets, one of these well-respected prophets. So these are good answers, but are, is this actually who Jesus is? And so the basic response from the people of the day is like, Jesus, you are cut from the same fabric of these people that we respect and respect well. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He presses in tighter. And he, he moves from just, hey, what do other people say about me to what do you say about me? And if you're in like a, a the um, business world, you, you have evaluations, you have reviews every now and then. And, and so sometimes... You you'll get a review. Okay, this is what other people are saying about you in this review, but you kind of want to know. Okay, boss, wh- what do you say about me? You know, and that that turns it that, that makes it a little bit more uh, difficult for that boss and employee relationship. It's one thing to say, "Hey, this is what other people are saying," but it's it's very personal when you get into, "Hey, this is what I'm saying about you." And so Jesus is not all that interested about what other people. I mean, it's nice to know. But what do these men who have been following Jesus for weeks, for months, for years now, who have seen him do all these things, who do you say that I am? I mean, Jesus was asking, hey, it's, it's one thing for people outside of the circle to look in, and, and, they don't, they don't, and they don't see who I really am. That's one thing. But when you look at me, when you guys, whom I've spent months and years with, when you look at me, have you finally perceived who I actually am? Or am I still just that dim Blurry tree walking around in your vision, just like the man from Bethsaida. And so Peter speaks up for the crowd. He kind of is there. Um, no, it's back on the last one. We haven't advanced yet. Sorry. So Peter speaks up, and he says, you are the Christ. Man, that's, that's good stuff. This, this, is, this sounds impressive. This sounds positive. This sounds promising. I mean, Jesus, Peter is actually saying that, Jesus, you are the anointed one of God that was prophesied from the very beginning all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and that you were prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament, and now you are the promised son of God who has come to save people from their sins. That's good stuff. And he says, now this, and this Matthew's gospel makes it pretty clear that this was not revealed to Peter by flesh and blood, but Matthew's gospel says that this was revealed by God the Father himself. And in verse 30, after this, like, this sounds awesome, and Peter's finally seeing this. In verse 30, Jesus says he strictly charges them, he orders them not to tell anyone about it. That's very curious to me. Why would he do that? I mean, it's like finally somebody is seeing Finally, somebody sees Jesus for who he is. He's not just a figment of the imagination. He's not just some prophet, but he's actually the Christ. He's actually the anointed one. He's actually the Messiah. Why would Jesus say, hey, don't tell anybody about this? Well, one reason is really, really clear. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where you're using the same vocabulary, but after a while you realize that you're using a totally different dictionary from that other person? All right, this happens in marriage a lot, okay in marriage, this happens a lot, all right okay a, a husband that will remain nameless will do something really dumb, something really stupid, something that totally gets underneath the skin of his wife, and Finally, the husband who will remain nameless realizes his his stupidity, and he goes to his wife and says, "Man, I am so sorry I, was, I had no clue that, how stupid that was. I apologize." I want to know, is everything okay? And she says, I'm fine. Same vocabulary, different dictionary. He hears I'm fine and thinks, that was a close one. She could have really gotten teed off with me over that. But after a couple of minutes of quiet tension that you could cut with a knife, the husband breaks the silence and says, hey, what's wrong? I thought you said that. We were fine. And she says, nothing's wrong. I'm fine. Same vocabulary, different dictionary. Now, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't take being married just a couple of months, if that, to, to experience this concept of same dictionary, a same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. That's not what she's saying is not what is being intended. That's not what the real meaning is. Well something very similar. But much less humorous is happening here. Peter and his disciples have the same vocabulary as Jesus. They agree that Jesus is the Christ, but they have a totally different definition of what being the Christ means. And so, Jesus, knowing their lack of understanding of what the Christ is, knowing that they're wrong in their definition, they have the right vocabulary, but a totally wrong definition, Jesus. The last thing he wants to see happen is for others to superimpose their incorrect definition upon himself. And so what does Jesus graciously do? He begins to teach them. He knows their definition is wrong. So he begins to teach them. He knows that what they have grown up thinking and assuming about the Messiah, about the Christ, is totally wrong. And so he teaches them. He simply begins to reveal the clear and simple, proper understanding of what the Christ, the Messiah, was to do. He doesn't want to settle for the disciples' understanding. He doesn't want to go with their definition. He wants to give them the proper definition. Jesus knows that just saying the right thing doesn't mean that you're actually seeing the right thing. Totally different. You can say the right thing. Jesus, you're the Christ. But do we re- do, does Peter really see what that means? And so be, P- Jesus begins to teach them. He teaches them that the Son of Man must, and he gives us four very different things from Peter's definition. The Son of Man must first suffer many things. Second, that the Son of Man must be rejected by the religious crowd, by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. And third, he says... The Son of Man must be killed. And fourth, he says, after three days, the Son of Man, the Messiah, me, the Christ, must rise again. Now get this. This long-awaited Messiah must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. These are not just simply possibilities that Jesus is postulating in front of his followers. But this is the actual course that Jesus' life as the Messiah will play out. Before the very earth was formed, the Father had determined that the Son, His Son, His Messiah, His anointed one, would suffer, be rejected, be killed, and raised from the dead in order to redeem people from their sin and ultimately in order for the Father to be the Father of people united to them through Jesus. With these statements, this is the first time in Mark Jesus talks this way about death, about his suffering, about his rejection. These simple statements, Jesus is charting the course of the future of his ministry. And Mark even says, he says this plainly in verse 32. This, this idea, it was bold. It was very clear. Jesus was very simple. He didn't beat around the bush anymore. He was very clear that there's going to be rejection, suffering, death, and then resurrection. Resurrection. Just as Jesus opened the eyes of this blind man, Jesus is, tr- is opening, he's revealing the truth to open the eyes of his followers. But this wasn't what the followers thought when they thought of the Messiah. The, 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 the typical Jew and the, the followers that, of, of Jesus, these disciples, they didn't see suffering and, and rejection and death and resurrection in their Messiah. They saw a ruler. They saw a political power. They saw a reformer. They saw a victorious liberator over the wicked Gentiles who had been ruling them for some centuries by this point. These men who are walking with Jesus from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi, they had no vision of their long-awaited Messiah suffering at the hands of their own religious leaders. This, This was nowhere on their radar screen. This was nowhere in their vision, nowhere in their sight. They were totally blind to this reality. These men, as every Jewish man, eagerly awaited the Messiah to come to make right all the wrongs of the Gentiles that the Gentiles had done to them, wanting to restore the prestige and the power that the Israelite state once had under David and Solomon. That's what they were thinking, that the Messiah would restore them to that. And Peter was not gonna stand for it. Peter was not gonna stand for this teaching of suffering and rejection and, and, and death and resurrection. He wasn't gonna stand for this. And so being the spokesman, if you will, for the disciples who who just made this amazing confession, using the vocabulary of Jesus, saying, you are the Christ, Peter now speaks up and says, This is not gonna happen. You're not gonna suffer, you're not gonna die, you're not gonna be rejected. This, I'm not going to let you, Jesus, be Miss Debbie Downer and rain on our parade here. We are going to usher in this thing we've been longing for for years. And so what does Peter do? Look, he's, and Peter took him, Jesus, aside, and Peter began to rebuke Jesus. Now, I'm not reading that incorrectly. Peter is rebuking Jesus. That's one thing to disagree with a teacher, right? A rabbi. But it's another thing to outright rebuke him. And what was he rebuking him for? What's what we just said? It's pretty clear. Peter had answered correctly, saying that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He has the right vocabulary, but a totally wrong dictionary. He had no idea of the Messiah being. A spiritual Messiah to all who would believe. He had no idea of the Messiah coming to redeem a whole, the whole world who would believe from their sin. So Peter took it upon himself to take their newly confessed Christ to the side and set Jesus straight. See, Peter was saying, Jesus, you're not seeing clearly. You're seeing yourself as a man walking around like a tree. I, Peter, need to set your vision straight, Jesus. This word rebuke, it should sound familiar. Because we've already seen it several times in Mark. In chapter 1, Jesus rebukes a demon and tells the demon to leave a man. In chapter 4, Jesus rebukes the wind and tells the wind to stop. In these examples, Jesus is asserting his authority over the devils and over creation. And that's exactly what Peter is trying to do here. He is rebuking Jesus. He is asserting his authority, his authority. False authority over Jesus. His understanding of Messiah over Jesus' understanding of Messiah. So I hope we see this, this irony. I mean, it's pretty clear. It's pretty thick. That Jesus is beginning uh, to teach the disciples who, who he is and what this actually means to be the Messiah. And this doesn't settle well with the 12. So Peter speaks up, speaking for the 12, pulls Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus For Jesus' misunderstanding, and now, verse 33, Jesus turning and seeing his disciples, he, he being Jesus, rebukes Peter. Now, the same word rebuke is used here. You see this irony playing out? Jesus begins to teach what the Messiah is to do. Peter begins to rebuke Jesus and attempts to exercise authority over Jesus. And now Jesus openly and publicly rebukes Peter for his lack of understanding, his continued blindness. Peter sort of sees Jesus. He, he, he says he's the Christ. He sort of sees who he is, but he just sees him as this man, this, like a tree walking around, very blurry, just like the miracle from Bethsaida. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. If there's things that you want to be called by Jesus, I don't think Satan's on that list, right? I mean, why in the world would Jesus call Peter Satan? Well, it seems really harsh, you know. But it, it tells us, first of all, that at this point, Peter and none of the disciples were born again, regenerate new creation." That doesn't happen until Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes, after the crucif- crucifixion, after the resurrection. So, Because once someone is born again, they're a new creation, we know from the New Testament. Their old inner man is gone and a new inner man has come and is united to Jesus. Jesus would never call someone who is a new creation, a true born-again believer, Satan. This is, this is the bride. We are the bride of Christ now. We've been made holy and righteous in our union with God in the inner man. If you're a believer today, God has created in you a new creation, a new man. This new man is created, as Ephesians 4 talks about, in the very likeness of God himself in true holiness and true righteousness. As Craig read earlier, he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. But this hasn't happened yet for Peter nor the disciples. They're trying to understand the things of God without the Spirit of God in them revealing it. And it's not working very well. This just further proves the point that no one can come to God on their own. Jesus must work to bring people through His Spirit, through the revelation of the Father, and the Father wooing us to His side. If we don't have that, man, we're hopeless. And so they didn't have that at this time. And so Peter couldn't understand. Peter couldn't see fully. But Jesus calling Peter Satan also reveals to us what, what Peter is trying to do. Remember back to Mark chapter 1. Jesus and, Pe- Jesus and the, the devil were in the, in the desert for 40 days. And, and the devil was tempting Jesus to bypass his ministry, to bypass his mission, and to become a worshiper of Satan. And so the exact same thing is happening here. Peter is rebuking Jesus, trying to distract Jesus from his mission to suffer, to be rejected, to die, and to be raised again. He's trying to distract Jesus from that mission, to assert his authority, his plans for Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that's the exact same thing the devil sought to do at the beginning of my ministry. And that's not going to happen. I didn't succumb to the devil's temptation, Peter, and I'm not going to succumb to yours. Because the mission is not even mine, it's a mission that the father has given me to show his love for people. And so Jesus makes this really clear in this last verse that we're going to look at. He says, for you, Peter, are not setting your mind on the things of God, but you are setting your mind on the things of men. But Peter was looking at the Christ from not from God's perspective, not from God's point of view. He was still looking at the Christ from man's perspective as a political leader. Peter believed that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. That's a great vocabulary. He is the Christ. But that was fuzzy still. It was blurry. He was still seeing Jesus as, as, and, as, and who Jesus was as, as a man, like walking around like a tree. It's just fuzzy. It was blurry. Peter said the right things, but he was not seeing the right thing. Again, in the New Covenant, man, this reveals to us the truth, the power of what the New Covenant is. The prophets in the Old Testament, they talked about the suffering, the rejection, the death, and the resurrection. They talked about this. But no one in a million years would ever have applied that to the Messiah. They thought that someone else would have to do that, not their liberator. But now in the New Covenant, in the New Testament... Paul makes this crystal clear in Ephesians three that everything that was hidden about Christ in the old covenant has been fully revealed now in the new. The work of Christ, the mission of Christ, the purpose of Christ—all of it was there in the Old Testament. It was all there in the old covenant, but it was hidden. It was a mystery. It was—it was like seeing a man but looking like a tree walking around. It was very un, unknown, but now it's been revealed in the new covenant. In the old covenant, there was an understanding about the Christ, but it was blurry. It was like seeing a man walking around like a tree. But now in the new covenant, it has been made known. It has been made crystal clear. He came to glorify the Father by taking our sin from us so that the Father himself could unite himself to us, in us. And God's plan was never to live in a temple made by hands. That was never his plan. That was a blurry old covenant picture. And now the clear new covenant Reality is that God's plan is for His Spirit to now dwell in us. God's plan was never to have a blurry misunderstanding about a continual confession of sins needed to be forgiven before God as we read about with bulls and goats in the old covenant that Craig read about out of Hebrews chapter 10. But in the new covenant, it's now clear that God has offered one final ultimate sacrifice like we just sang about once and for all. As God's ultimate sacrifice Each and every sin that was placed on Jesus was totally and completely expunged and removed from our account because it was put on Jesus' account. God never had a plan to leave you working and working, trying to prove yourself to God with a list of rules. In the old covenant, it was blurry. It was confusing. There was much emphasis on doing this and not doing that. But now in the New Covenant, it's crystal clear that the laws of Moses were not given so that people could get to God, but the laws of Moses were given to show us that we could never get to God on our own. And we must be given the righteousness of another, of the Christ. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant was blurry. It was confusing, full of types and pictures of what was to come. But now in the New Covenant, The reality has come. Jesus has come. The Messiah has come to take away sin, to provide a place, prepare a place in you for God himself to now dwell. Peter missed the clarity of what Jesus' mission was on earth because his mind was set on the things of this kingdom instead of being set on the things of God's kingdom, of heaven. To Peter's defense, as I said earlier, Peter was not yet born again. He was not yet a part of the new covenant. We're still in the old covenant until the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We're still in the old covenant. The temple veil had not yet been torn. So Jesus is still teaching men in the old covenant what the new covenant is going to be like. But the warning remains for us today in the new covenant. We will only see clearly as our minds are set on the things of God. You see that? First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says this. This is Paul writing in the new covenant. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Kind of like when you get out of the shower and it's all fuzzy, you know, because of the condensation on the mirror. You're like, you know, hey, I look pretty good, you know, but it's all, you know, because you can't see anything yet. You know, we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we'll see face to face. Just because we're in the new covenant now, it doesn't mean that we see everything exactly as God sees it. Because we still have things that are keeping us from seeing perfectly. We still have sin in our flesh. We still have sin around us. We still have the devil accusing us of our guilt and of our shame. We still have things around keeping us from seeing the reality. But one day, we'll see face to face. One day. We will see the reality of who we are clearly when this life, when this kingdom has faded. That's awesome. And the joy for us as members of this new covenant is to live in that reality now. To set our minds on who we actually are now. So that the very life of Christ which is in us would be manifest through us. Think about what Paul left the Galatian believers with? What did he leave them with? Did he leave them with the four spiritual laws? You know what those are. Did he leave them with, you know, a copy of the Torah? Did Paul leave the Galatians with a copy of the New Testament? It hadn't been written yet. What did Paul leave with them? Jesus in them, their hope of glory. Listen, that is the reality of the new covenant that Christ has united himself to you, in you. And is created by that a new creation. The old is gone. A new has come. And if we don't see that, our mind is going to continue to be on the things of this world instead of the things of God. The journey marker today just simply says this. Saying the right things does not mean we're seeing the right things. In our church this morning we could probably all say we'll probably vast majority say that Jesus is the Christ but do you really see what that means do you really see what the Christ has come to do he has come to remove from you and from me every single thing that could ever stand between us and the father he has come to prepare a place in us for the father and you to be united in this kingdom that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. As our band comes up to lead us in our closing worship song, I just want to ask a couple questions. What would happen in your life if you set your mind on the things of God instead of the things of man? What do you think would happen? Now, what are the things of God and the things of man? Well, men... Point to failure, don't they? Don't we? I mean, that's what we do. We point to failure. God points out forgiveness. So you want to set your mind on your failures and continue to live in those failures or set your mind on the forgiveness that God offers you and has provided you of, from all of your failures. Men, remind you of your shortcomings. That's the way of men. That's, that's the result of eating from the tree of good, of the knowledge of good and evil. But God reminds you, not of shortcomings, but of your salvation, that your sin has been removed and you are now secure in Christ. Men see your actions. It's what we see. And we judge each other by those actions in this realm, this earthly realm. But Jesus sees his son and you who are in his son do not pass, uh, but you pass through judgment You do not come into judgment, but you pass through judgment as you pass from death into life. Men measure in good, better, and best. God measures by being in Christ or by being not in Christ. And those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. So, which are we going to set our minds on? The things of man? The things of the old covenant? or the things of the new, what Jesus has come to do. What would your life look like different if this week you focused on the things of God? What would collectively happen in our church if we in our church together continue to dwell not on the things of men, but on the things of God? Don't you think that as we embrace the reality of who we are in this new covenant, that God would be faithful to his word and the very life of Christ would be manifest through us into our community to the glory and the praise and the spreading of his fame? Why do you think most churches do not manifest the life of Christ in their community? I think it has to do with the fact that we, though we're in the new covenant, we continue to set our minds on the things of men Rather than things of God. I don't think the half has even been told as to what a local church can do in their community and around the world if the people in that church would stop focusing on the things of men but actually begin to see who they are through the lens of God. Focusing, setting our minds on the things of God. I want this truth to penetrate deep into our church. In the book of Ephesians, Paul was teaching this young church who they actually are in the new covenant. In Ephesians 1, he reminds them that in this new covenant, they're blessed. In the new covenant, they're chosen. In the new covenant, they're holy. In the new covenant, Paul says, you're blameless before him. In the new covenant, you're redeemed, you're adopted, you're forgiven of all sin. This is Ephesians chapter 1. He says, in the new covenant, you are sealed by the very spirit of God. And after he reminds them of this glorious truth of the reality of the new creation in them and how it's perfectly united to the Father through Christ, he prays for them. And he prays that they would further and further be renewed in their minds to see the things of God instead of the things of man. And this is what he prays. I want you to see this on the screen. He prays, Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. An understanding of a revealed reality of the knowledge of Him. Having already had the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that is, already being in this new covenant, that already happened, I pray that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you. I pray that it will be revealed to you what you actually are in Him, what the riches of His glorious inheritance to those who are saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of this great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and has now seated him in the heavenly realm. Saints, Paul prayed, may we join together in this prayer now that our eyes, having been opened to the reality of Jesus, we would confess that Jesus is the Christ. We would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Would we pray that God would continue to help us see clearer and clearer what it actually means to be in Christ. That the wrath of God was totally poured out on Jesus so it wouldn't be poured out on us. That being in Christ means that every last sin that we could ever commit was removed from our account because it was placed on Jesus' account. In the new covenant in Christ, it means that our identity has changed. We were in Adam. Sinners, But now we are in Christ, saints. In the new covenant, we realize that the sin we even still commit no longer is charged to our account because it was already charged to Jesus' account. In the new covenant, when we pray that we realize that God is no longer far from us, but that he's actually in us, united to us in the new creation. Not to this flesh, but to the new creation in us. As the reality of this new covenant becomes clearer and clearer, it will change our lives. It will change our families. It will change our church. It will change our communities. Saying the right things doesn't mean we're actually seeing the right things. So what's left for us to do? To set our mind on the things of God and not the things of men. To set our minds, to see clearer what God has done for us. Removing from us our old and giving us something brand new. But what if you don't believe in Jesus this morning? Could I just tell you what Jesus says? He says, change your mind and believe in me. Because I give you life. I give you what you can never get on your own. So if you don't believe in Jesus, begin trusting Jesus now. Because if you don't, you still remain in your sin. Pass from death into life. Richard and I are going to be in the back of the room if you want to come and talk with us about Jesus, about life in Christ, about this new covenant, this thing we teach of, this thing that Jesus is teaching on. But I'm going to pray over us, and I'm just going to ask that you spend a couple of minutes before we sing our final worship song, which is entitled, Jesus Messiah, right? Great vocabulary, but do you see what that actually means? Who you actually now are in Christ. So before we sing, I just want to leave a couple of minutes on the table for you just to, to pray. You to ask God to reveal to you who you are in Christ that you would set your mind on the things of God and not the things of man. And then Craig and the band will lead us in a final worship song. Father, I just pray that this morning through whatever words that have been spoken, I pray, Father, that a clear truth has been communicated. That we can have the right vocabulary saying that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Christ. But if we're not careful, we we might not see what that actually means. So God, I just pray that Your Spirit would reveal to us truth. God, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know You, that doesn't have a relationship with You, that doesn't see You at all, God, I pray that You would open their eyes, having the eyes of their heart open opened, as Paul says. God, we pray that that would happen. God, we beg of you this morning to continue to reveal, unveil in us, in our minds what this new covenant, the things of God, are really all about. God, as your your saints, as your children, pray, God, answer their cry. They pray for you to reveal to them who they are in you. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please, do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.